1: you <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer podcast. Really quickly, before we get into this episode, I wanted to mention my Patreon. Patrons get all of the podcasts a week early. I do giveaways. I do some other stuff. But most importantly, if you want me to review your music or artwork or anything else, Patreon is the way to do that. Every month, I do a call for submissions All you need to do if you want me to review something is just post it in the comments of that post, then I will review it live on Twitch for the hundreds of people that tune into every stream and post it on Patreon for everyone to check out all you need to do is just join at the $10 and up level stay tuned for that post. And you are good to go. So, if that sounds cool to you and you want me to review your music, artwork, or anything else, hit the link in the show notes for this episode. And thank you very much to everyone who supports over on Patreon. Hello, everybody. Today's episode is another interview that I just did uh, on a podcast called Pod of Never by Matthew Nanes, who is somebody that I got to know on LinkedIn and a great conversation about kind of the ups and downs of being a creator. And uh, again, you know, to me, the common thread in a lot of these conversations is really about the importance of controlling your own psychology. Because I think, you know, that's really the biggest challenge about being a creator to me is like, obviously doing the work like has its challenges. But The really hard part, at least for me, and I think for a lot of other people, is kind of that mental roller coaster of doubting yourself and dealing with negative feedback and all that kind of stuff that, I I don't know, to me, that's the hardest part. That is the kind of stuff that we talk about in this show quite a bit. Uh, Really good podcast, uh, so make sure, if you like this episode, uh, make sure you check out the other episodes of his show. We'll have a link to that in the uh, show notes, and thank you
1: for checking this out. This is the interview with Finn mckenty of the punk rock nba enjoy um, so basically what i wanted to do today because I'm, I'm very much interested in the uh, cross-section of diy culture and subculture and professionalism and in, in, in business um not quite as much as a ram or selenian because i do listen to his podcast whenever he does put stuff out but like I just kind of feel like this culture kind of I don't know, just doesn't like really understand like our quote unquote superpower, <laughs> you know, stepping into these sorts of situations. And um I, I figure there's no better person to talk to, you know, than you. You know, we've been kind of LinkedIn flirting here a bit, you know, commenting and liking and such. And so like, you know what? I I think the more people I think understands there's value to the kind of lives we've lived, I think would be a, a good thing, you know, yeah, for everyone. So, um, so you're up pretty early. So I want to ask you, you know, how, how are you starting your days these these days? You know, it's nine o'clock there right now. Well, what's the typical, I don't know, what the morning of Finn McKenzie. Well,
0: I'm a creature of habit. I do the same thing every day. Um, I don't set an alarm clock. I usually wake up super early just cause I, I, I do. I wish I, I wish I could sleep in actually. (laughs) Um, but I'm usually up by six at the latest, usually five. Uh, and I do the same thing every day. Uh, generally I try to work out in the morning because if I don't, then usually, you know, the day tends to get crazy and it's hard to find time later. So I do that, make breakfast, wake up my wife and, uh, then I get on with it. And I, I do the same thing every day and works for me. I know most people, you know, I, I'm I'm not a variety seeking person. I'm the opposite. Uh, I know lots of people like to do different things and like to, you know, I don't know. I'm a creature of habit.
1: Yeah, I hear that. I used to be like the sleep in kind of guy, but then I worked at Starbucks for five years and like doing those early morning shifts. And now even if I want to, I can't even sleep in past 730. Yeah, and- <laughs> that's rough. Sometimes I got to be
0: there, you know, 430 or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the earliest I've ever had to be somewhere like at a a Starbucks store was like four forty-five. But that's That's when I was—that's rough. when I was a lot younger and could probably handle it. But I also had like undiagnosed sleep apnea Uh. as well, Uh. (laughs) and so like it was as if I was functioning on two hours of sleep. I just didn't—I didn't know it. And so, right. But I still have that like gear in my head to you know wake up early and you know get stuff done. That was probably one of the best things that happened to me, honestly. You know, as as far as that goes. And so let's – I want to talk about, you know, your first kind of encounter with the counterculture because, like, I, I know from listening to your content and, and, and watching, you know, your your life story and whatnot, but, like, what was the first time you encountered the, the counterculture, I suppose, and what was, like, your first in, impressions of that?
0: I mean, I guess it defen- depends on how you define it. My parents, you know, were – basically like hippie drug addicts and whatnot. So, uh, I mean, I was around that, you know, my whole life, uh, specifically as far as like hardcore or metal or anything like that goes, uh, I saw suicidal tendencies on MTV in 1990. It was like when they, they'd been banned from playing in LA for like five years because of violence at their shows. And they'd finally gotten the, the go ahead to play another show in LA and, uh, they did some MTV news segment about it and, I was like, I don't know exactly what that is, but that's pretty cool. I'm into that, whatever it is. And I went out and I got their album. And uh that was kind of the beginning of everything.
1: Yeah. So you got that album, was it like because I remember when I'd buy CDs or whatever, they'd have like the thank you list, and you can kind of see all like all the bands that they mentioned and all that. Like, so you bought that album. Did that have anything like that within the album? Like, hey, we like to thank like circle jerks. I'm sure or whatever. I, I, I don't like I just... don't remember
0: that specific one. Um because I actually ended up not liking that album all that much. I like some of their other ones a lot better. It was Lights, Camera, Revolution, which is, uh, in my opinion, sort of the last halfway decent thing they did. Um, but uh, the thanks list and stuff definitely that was a huge thing for me uh, back then.
1: Yeah, and so um, and, and just to be clear, like you grew up in the Seattle area, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So, like, what was like your jumping off point on, of getting involved with that? that scene? Uh,
0: I don't specifically remember like I don't specifically remember exactly what the first thing was, but the scene back then in Seattle was not big. Uh, And really, Seattle has never been like a big music town. I know that obviously because of grunge, people sort of think that it is, but it's not. It never has been back then. A lot of tours didn't even go here because it's kind of out of the way. Even now, there's still a decent amount that don't, Um, but especially back then. There was hardly anything going on here so somehow or another i discovered you know local bands the really the only like meaningful hardcore band back then from Seattle was this band called undertow uh somehow i discovered undertow and some other bands like that and went to the shows and you know that was that there was a you know some cool like diy venues and stuff back then and it was a lot of fun uh not a lot of shows i mean it was like a big deal if a national hardcore band would come through town that only happened a few times a year so it was like a big deal
1: yeah and did you feel right at home like right away like the like the first time you stepped into like the the venue and you kind of felt like you're among your people or was it kind of like you know getting used to to stepping into that environment
0: uh no i didn't because uh, I've always been, um, I've always been, I guess, what's the right way to put it? Kind of at odds with a lot of parts of, you know, uh, counterculture to use your term. I've always been kind of at odds with a lot of that stuff. Um, and, and the Seattle scene back then was like a lot of them, but kind of like clicky. And back then it wasn't cool to like metal, which I, I was, you know, I liked metal a lot. And, uh, so I always felt a little bit kind of, yeah, I always felt a little bit out of place, actually, until I moved to Cleveland. Then I felt a little bit I moved to Cleveland in 1996. And for whatever reason, I, I just felt a lot more kind of at home there. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't. And I still don't like I don't when I'm, I am go to a show or something, I don't feel like I, I feel like I'm the opposite of at ease and among my people.
1: Do you think it took like that time between like 1990 or, you know, from that suicidal tendencies to um you know when you moved to to cleveland several years later do you think that just kind of took like growing up a little bit or just the right kind of like attitude amongst that specific scene i think it was more the dynamics of that specific scene but even now like if i
0: go to a scene now or go to a show now like i don't i'm not a music person you know like i'm not Uh, uh people who know me from youtube and stuff think of me that way like it's not my passion, it's not like my biggest interest it's it's work for me, you know
1: yeah so what what attracted you to you know metal in in hardcore then in the first place
0: uh well, I mean, I guess probably the same thing as everyone else if you uh are a pissed off kid that you know wants to be rebellious and whatever and yell and scream at authority figures, you know same stuff as everybody else,
1: yeah. And so within like the bands that you would you would find and and whatnot, was there someone within that scene that kind of stood out amongst not feeling like like you were a part of it? Like was there someone in in your life or a band that you're like you know what like I don't feel like I belong, but this guy rules or like this girl, this band rules or this girl rules I can look up to them. Was there anyone like that?
0: Uh, Probably Youth of Today was the first band that I really felt that way with who I discovered when I was maybe like 14 or 15. Um, They have a song called Youth of Today uh, where like one of the lines is living fast and dying young was just a fad for fucking losers who didn't care. Uh, Which, you know, coming from like my parents, I mean, you know, my parents were drug addicts. I think four of my uncles went to prison for drug related stuff and my you know, stepsister od and all kinds of stuff. So I, I was never into the self-destructive thing. So hearing them say that, uh, and, and they, they didn't, they looked normal. Um, and, uh, so that definitely like hit home with me in a way that a lot of those other stuff didn't.
1: So I did some LinkedIn lurking, some, some, uh, so, some of that before coming on and kind of looking at your, your, your history as far as like going to school and, and, and jobs and whatnot. And so uh, you went to school at uh, University of Cincinnati. Was that before, mm-hmm. after mo- moving to Cleveland?
0: Uh, after, after. Okay.
1: So, what when you were growing up in in f- discovering, you know, Youth of Today and, and, and being being into metal and all that, were you even thinking about like improving your life as far as like your know education or your profession? Were you no, even thinking about that stuff? Not once ever. What What do you think sparked the idea of of making that jump into, you know, getting your education?
0: Uh, well, I was working a lot of jobs that sucked Yeah, and I was not happy and I just sort of kept bouncing off of the opportunities that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I of course thought I knew everything. So I stubbornly insisted that, you know, I didn't need to go to school because I was smart and I could do blah, blah, blah. And I don't need to do this. Um, you know, it's just a piece of paper and all the kind of dogmatic stuff that people tell themselves a lot of time. then, eventually I just beat my head against the wall enough times. So I was like, you know what, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I should just do things the way that everyone else does. Maybe I should quit playing in hard mode, Mm -hmm. go to school. And lo and behold, kind of changed everything for me.
1: Yeah. So, so when you say hard mode, like what was that for you? Like what kind of things or, or attitudes were kind of putting, you know, flipping on the hard mode, so to speak? Well, what was that for you?
0: Well, I was applying for a lot of jobs uh, that I wanted and getting absolutely zero interest uh, from any of the people that I wanted to work for. Uh, And in hindsight, I was like wildly unqualified for them. You know, I had maybe the right attitude, but I just didn't have the skills for them. So, I mean, I can see why they didn't want to hire me. Um, And uh, really, that's just that's I just could get zero traction uh, on getting any of the jobs that I wanted to get. And uh, I just it just felt like there was a steel door shut in front of my face. And like I could do nothing but kind of claw at that door, you know, and uh, and I was like, all right, fuck it. I guess I got to go to school.
1: Yeah. So you're wanting to work with all these cool people. But was was like that culture of hard work bred into you whatsoever, like like maybe through other family members or other other friends, like was was working always part of the equation for you, even like.
0: I think I was just born that way. Um, you know, my parents are both hard workers in their own way. Uh, even though my mom never really had like an actual career, she's a hard worker in her own way. Um, uh, my dad was a corrections officer. He was in the Navy and then he's a corrections officer. Um, nothing super glamorous, but he was a real hard worker too. But I think I was just born that way. I mean, my mom told me that when I was like two or three years old, I would wake her up at four in the morning, you know, uh, saying that I needed a project to do or something. I, it's just, I think that's just how I was born.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, you know, a superpower, if you will, as far as, like, just being born, like, like that, right? Because a lot of, a lot of people, like, like myself, like, you know, I, both of my parents were 20 plus years in the military, and I don't think that sort of, like, year of was, I, I wasn't able to flip that gear on until much later in life. It was like, okay, right. yeah, I see the value of that hard work. Like I had to get my ass kicked a little bit, but like, like I, I would, I don't know. Like if, if, if I were born that way, I think I would, I would be much further along <laughs> in, 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 in my career or whatever, but I'm here now, you know, and that's, you know, that's.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. It's also really hard for me to like um, relax. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm like, I mean, I don't think I'm uptight. Other people probably do, but, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, like, it's very difficult for me. Like I can't sit down and just like watch TV or play a video game or read a book or like, I, the only things I do, I work, I work out and I hang out with my wife and that's it. Like I don't have any hobbies or interests or anything like that. (laughs) Just not interest. I mean like like business business to me is like, like, nothing is as interesting as that to me.
1: And so when, you were enrolled at, you know, at University of Cincinnati, like, was it kind of like a culture shock to put yourself in that sort of system to the the whole academic game, if you will?
0: Um, I mean, I could see why you would say that. But no, I actually thought it was awesome. And I loved it. I mean, there was like bureaucratic stuff that I didn't understand. And like, I would, for years, I would still have nightmares waking up that I like didn't register for some class that I had to have in order to graduate and like be like, Oh fuck. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. So like the sort of bureaucratic stuff I didn't understand, but, uh, I, I loved it. And like, if I understood how, uh, how the educational system worked in another life when I was a little bit younger, I might've gotten a PhD and, you know, been like a marketing professor or something like that because I actually really enjoyed that environment a lot. Um, so I, I, I thought it was awesome. I had no complaints. I didn't. The only culture shock. I mean, when I uh, I said before about not feeling like I fit in with, uh, you know, countercultural types, um, that was the only sort of surprising moment I had. I originally uh, started the in the design program there. The reason I went to the, to the University of Cincinnati is because they have one of the best public school design program, or I'm mean even including private schools, but one of the best design programs in the country. Um, and that's the reason why I went there. And I realized after uh, i was three years in i think uh, that i was actually a lot more interested in like business specifically marketing and kind of product development than i was in design and i switched into that program and i was kind of nervous it's like oh i'm going to be in the college of business with all these you know normies am i going to get along with them and it turned out that i got along with those people way better than i got along with the design people and uh, i realized around that time, I was also working in a product development agency at the time. And I just uh, I I don't want sometimes I wonder if it's a self fulfilling prophecy. But I I just realized at that time that I kind of clash with people that have sort of the creative artistic kind of mindset. It's not my people. I get along much better with like engineers and accountants, and people like that. Um, And uh, so actually, switching into the college business, I was like, Okay, now I found my people, I feel super comfortable here. Yeah,
1: that's really it's that's really interesting, especially like the whole idea of, you know, music just music in general, not even just like subcultures or, or or whatever like that. Because you're dealing with people who are just a lot. Unless you're working at a record label or whatever, you're dealing with a lot of feelings.
0: <laughs> yeah, and even people that work at labels and stuff typically are, um, with all due respect to any of my friends at labels, for the most part, people in the music industry are not very good at their jobs and like don't have a lot of, you know, formal training or skills or they're, they're music fans who sort of found their way at a, in, into some job in the industry because they're passionate about music. They're not necessarily passionate about their craft in the same way as you'd find someone, you know, at, uh, you know, Amazon or whatever. You don't get to be, you don't stumble into a job as a product manager at Amazon, whereas you can definitely stumble into that job at a label.
1: Yeah, the amount of the amount of people that that I know who are still in the music industry or like at one point did that. It's purely like stumble. you just know people. It's it's who, you know, and not not the hard work.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to I mean, they work hard. I just don't think uh, I don't think that they're especially skilled or good at their jobs. I mean, the conversations I've had with people at labels or at management companies who have been doing this for a really long time that um, work with really high level artists that don't understand really, really basic stuff like lifetime value is shocking to me. Well, it's not shocking anymore, but it was, I'm like, you work with this band and, and, and the idea of lifetime value, this is the first time you're hearing it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's well I I would as, I would assume, especially like back then too, like in you know, late nineties, early two thousands. I'm not talking about back then, I'm talking about last month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. That I suppose that that too, you know? Like it's 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 funny because I feel like, you know, not to say like you're saying, like there's not a lot of hard work because obviously like to be in that, you know, in a band and in and, and all of that, it requires a lot of sacrifice and just yeah. Crawling, you know, scratching and, you know, to even book a show depending on, you know, where you are in your in your career, because I can say that for myself, you know, like, right out of high school, I was booking shows out to Furnace Fest in 03. And I'm 18. Like, I don't know. I didn't go to school. I didn't, I didn't read marketing books. Like it was the last and thing you don't need
0: to. It's like, it's it, the, bu- traditional business knowledge is basically useless and irrelevant in music because nobody else knows it. Nobody else talks that language. It runs completely on feelings and emotion and who you're friends with. So it, it's essentially useless. It's just, it's two different worlds. Um, it's not like, And the technology is just absolutely fucking stone age everywhere in music. So it, I I don't know, like somebody emailed me a while ago saying that they were like in a master's of data science program at like Stanford or some big school. And like, you know, hey, where do you, you know, how could I use this in music? And I was like, oh, you can't. (laughs)
1: They're not there yet.
0: (laughs) No, and they probably never will be like you, anything involving like numbers or a plan or structure, you show that to somebody with in music or really just the creative, but it's not even just music. It's people with that creative mindset in general and their eyes just glaze over. Sure. It's just not how their brains work. And I respect that because I'm not very creative. I'm the opposite of that. Um, and I respect, I respect that, you know, because they're able to do things that I can't. And I, and I think those things are very valuable. Uh, it's just not, it's just not me, you know? Yeah
1: yeah that that's that's really interesting to hear because like when you talk about like going into the business school and like oh no like normies you
0: know yeah (laughs) like and i was like oh actually i'm i'm one of them i just happen to know a lot about weird music
1: i think that's the thing i'm kind of realizing myself because like i was saying like when i was in high school like i would look at like what at least at that time what success was right like white collar, you know, try to avoid the military. Like my family. Yeah. Family. Tough life. Yeah. And, in, in, but I, the things that I, you know, that I learned as far as like the, the grit and grind aspect, you know, I kind of say that sarcastically, but like, oh my gosh, like the people that I get along with now are the people who, who might be like the, the successful, like Normie people who maybe yeah. always wanted to do that. Cause for me, I never considered my going into business for myself. Like I, it was just like, what the hell it's either like music or I have no idea what the hell I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people within, I mean, of course a lot, lots of other types of people don't know what they're doing, but especially like maybe in some cultures where success might be frowned upon, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, cause you, you we're all talking with our friends and talking shit on people, you know, and, but then you realize, you know, we actually want to do something for yourself. That's maybe not the right attitude to, to take.
0: Yeah. I just, um, I just do my best uh, to insulate myself from those people. Um, You know, it's sort of a daily drain on my mental health to have to interact with those type of people. And like, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely grating. I probably have the same, it's the same challenge as all these people who are like, Oh, I'm this creative independent free thinker stuck in this world full of uptight, you know, bean counters. I, to me, it's the opposite. Uh, and it's just like a, a daily sort of test of my, uh, ability to stay calm and, uh, get through it to be surrounded by creative people all the time. And I mean, I respect what they do. It just, it's extremely draining for me.
1: Yeah. And so, Coming out of your, your college experience, you were, you were doing, were you doing design like as you were going through college and, and so did that make the work that knowing that you didn't necessarily want to be a designer? Did it make, make the work a little bit harder or did you like foresee like the three to five year plan at that point when you're done with school? Uh, yeah. I mean, I
0: I basically uh realized halfway through that that I didn't enjoy doing design, um. But at the time, that was the opportunity in front of me, and so I, you know, I mean, I'm not going to turn it down. And in particular, uh, I was I was really fortunate to get that job at that design agency while I was in school because we worked with Procter and Gamble for the most part. That was like a big client. So the stuff I worked on was like Febreze, Swiffer, Tide, Pampers. Uh, Crest, like these giant, giant global mega brands, like the biggest brands on the planet. I mean, at the time, Tide alone was doing like $11 billion a year, uh, and it's probably way bigger than that now. This sure. was 15 years ago. Um, and uh, just the scale of that and being exposed to the way that they think, even though I wasn't necessarily that excited about doing design, being part of the process with Procter and Gamble was amazing and transformational and incredible and like one of the most pivotal things that's ever happened in my life. There's absolutely no, they they just really taught me how to think in a way that I'm just incredibly grateful for.
1: Yeah, so let's let's dig into that a little bit more as far as that way of thinking is concerned. What what would you say is like the transformation of being around that sort of like aura, if you will? You know, the the philosophical aspects is it. it's not
0: even philosophical. It's like very specific. Like they, they created the world's, I mean, they basically invented consumer marketing as we know it. I mean, like soap operas for example, are called soap operas because these were TV shows that originally created to advertise soap made by Procter and Gamble. So like they basically created the soap opera to sell dove, you know, in like the forties or whatever it was super long time ago. Um, all of these things that we take for as granted take for granted now as part of the consumer marketing you know brand playbook they invented it and they have a very very rigorous process for that i'm sure it's changed since you know i worked with them but for example one of the things that they come up with that they had as like a model for how you create a product concept um, one of the things that starts with like understanding what the acb is which is the accepted consumer belief for example people believe that you have to nourish your hair which actually makes no sense because your hair is not living tissue so it can't be nourished but that's what people believe and you got to meet people where they are so that's like a big lesson for me is you can't change i mean Perhaps some people are able to change consumer beliefs in some instances, but by and large, you can't really change consumer beliefs. So the, that's one concept that they have as part of the process. Another thing is like compensating behaviors. So like, here's the accepted consumer belief. Here's the problem they're trying to solve. Here are the compensating behaviors for that. And out of the intersection of these things comes the concept. For example, for Swiffer, what they found is that people would mop and they would sweep But there was this sort of fine grit that neither of those things would capture. And the compensating behavior that they found is that people would take a mop and um, rubber band a uh, paper towel around it, like a moist paper towel around it to, to get that like layer of fine grit. And Swiffer is that. It's a mop with a paper towel around it.
1: Yeah. So was it just like, cause I can imagine like, you know, I didn't go, th- so I'm an English major. So like I okay. didn't get to go through the business or marketing side of it. Cause I just didn't think it applied to me at that time. Yeah. It's something like, you know, the whole marketing thing came to me a lot later, but for you, like was the, were those sort of things even taught in your experience as, as far as school's concerned?
0: Uh, to some extent. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things I learned in school that's super valuable, like, especially like math and finance. Like I didn't, I mean, you know, my parents didn't know anything about money or, 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 or math or anything like that. Um, so for like simple stuff, like, you know, NPV, like that's a simple thing, but understanding just the concept of NPV, which is for anyone who's not familiar net present value, which is a way of uh, evaluating the value of a potential investment over time. Um, which is a very simple way of, you know, deciding should we invest in this project versus another project, Um, whether you actually do NPV calculations or not is secondary to the just sort of conceptual framework of thinking about discounted future cash flows, for example, or like, Uh, I had to take like four quarters of calculus because I don't know why people think that business is like an easy major. It's fucking not. I had to take four quarters of calculus. I had to take a whole bunch of like stats and operations management and accounting and shit. It was all math, like like all math. Um, And I didn't even know what calculus was. I hadn't taken a math class in like 13 years or something because I went back when I was 25. I hadn't taken a math class since like algebra two in like eighth grade, you know, ninth grade or something and then i had to i literally didn't didn't even know what calculus was but there are foundational parts of calculus like could i sit down and do calculus now no um but the idea of a first derivative and second derivative and area under curve and stuff conceptually are things that i use all the time every day
1: yeah i i, I dropped out of pre-cal in high school and i have <laughs> went back so
0: with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk
1: rock NBA. And thanks again to Distrokid for sponsoring this episode. It's just wild to me, like, how much, because, like, for me as a an English major, there are things that I would say that I'm putting to use right now when I work with brands and, and develop messaging or whatnot. But, like, the first five or so years of my career, like, I didn't know, like, I had to unlearn a lot of certain things, right. but I feel like if I would have done like a business or a marketing major, maybe I would have been forced to, you know, do the things like math that might have actually impacted my real life, you know, as far I as, I think like there's the a lot of people with that, that kind
0: of creative mindset who write that stuff up. Uh, it's a lot of arrogance, I think among creative people that there's sort of a, uh, there's a lot of, negative self-limiting thinking that goes on in the creative world, Um, which makes sense because, you know, creative people are all kind of neurotic high strung people for the most part. You know, I think um, there's uh, what's the, uh, the big five personality traits. I'm certain that if you gave that to people with creative jobs, that, uh, that almost all of them would score high on neuroticism. Um, And that's not a criticism. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a a, a fact or I believe it to be a fact. And uh, there's a lot of self-limiting negative thinking that goes on in the creative world. A lot of people who think that they turn up their nose at things like math or marketing or whatever uh, for a variety of reasons, either because they have this like dysfunctional relationship with money where they think that money is a bad thing or something like that. And they have a lot of these uh, what Ramit Sethi calls uh, invisible scripts in their head, like, you know, that people who do marketing are all like bad people that are uh, just out there to, to, to scam people out of their money stuff like that, which is all bullshit. This is like, in reality, the people in marketing are just fucking normal chill ass people just, you know, are doing a job just like everyone else. I remember, um, talking to one of the designers, uh, at that agency, uh, and are at at Procter and Gamble, the kind of the, the 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 kings of the kings and queens of their little fiefs are the brand managers. So there's one for every product, for like Swiffer, for Febreze, Tide. They each have a brand manager, and they sort of at the end you know, they're the general managers for each of these things. And uh, our ultimate client is them. And uh, I remember uh, the brand manager for Febreze at the time was really cool. She was only like 30, uh, super cool person. And um, and they are marketing people fundamentally. And I remember one of the designers was going on this rant about how marketing people were so terrible and evil and responsible for everything. I was like, well, what about Amanda? Like, do you you think she's a terrible person? He's like, well, no, she's cool. I'm like, all right, well, she's the person you're talking about. Do you think Amanda's a bad person? You know, it's just so much of this like emotional, irrational, like fear-based thinking that just does not, it's exhausting and draining to me. And another one of the things I liked about PNG is that was my first time working with a lot of engineers. Um, they are like very, very heavily. I mean, at the end of the day, they're a chemical engineering company. You know, they know how to make goop that goes in bottles and they know how to, they do incredibly good industrial engineering to make assembly lines that spit these things out and then distribute them to Walmart and Target and whoever else. So worked with a lot of uh, chemical engineers there, which is a new thing. And my, uh, the agency I worked for, we did industrial design and a lot of mechanical engineering. So that was my first time working with uh, mechanical engineers. And I was like, I love these people. Um, there's this kind of adversarial relationship between designers and engineers where the designers feel like the engineers are like Dr. No, that comes along and says, you can't do things. But I look at it the other way around, which is like designers, like we can't do shit without them because they actually build it. And by the way, they're really fucking smart people. So it might be a good move for you to put your own ego to the side and ask if, perhaps uh it might be smart to learn from them you know like for example one of the guys i worked with uh his job before it was he was an aerospace engineer he did like jet engines for ge and uh i would just ask him fucking random questions about mechanical engineering and he would just take an hour out of his day i'd be like hey bob uh i see you're always talking about finite element analysis fea what's that that's like this program that they use to sort of stress test things like They'll do um, rigid body simulations. For example, if you're making a bicycle, you would build the thing you know, in the computer program and it would show you based on simulations of force, like if you have somebody sitting on this thing and they pedal here and they hit a wall, what's going to break? That kind of thing. And uh, that was just like such a cool opportunity for me to just be exposed to all these other kinds of people that thought in a way that I wasn't aware of. And it was just so exciting and illuminating to me um, probably the way that other people feel when they discover music, yeah. <laughs> that's how I felt when I discovered engineers.
1: Yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought up the idea of, um, invisible scripts because I, cause I think you talk about Rameet Sethi, um, I think I bought his book because you did and having He's these great. ideas like how we, you know, all, all these, all this bullshit that we tell ourselves, I think. You, and you talking about engineers for me, the, the wake up moment was sales guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I, I remember like my second big boy job, so to speak. Right? We were working with a bunch of brands, and sales guys were selling the product that would eventually come to my doorstep for me to work. And I remember being upset a lot, be like, Oh, why are these guys doing blah 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 blah, and, and complaining. But then, like, halfway through that experience, like a light bulb went off i was like wait a sec maybe i should learn how they're doing this stuff so i could Because
0: guess what you don't fucking eat if they don't sell exactly
1: <laughs> exactly in like and so maybe you should be grateful exactly <laughs> and so i started hanging out with them going like up the stairs and you know there are yeah. certain sales guys on my accounts and i would let them know of certain ideas i had like hey like Can you start selling this? And they'd tell me no or yes for whatever reason. But then like getting that side of the, you know, that side of the coin was really illuminating for me because, you know, you would think, you know, seven years of playing in music and booking shows and stuff that, that relationships are important. (laughs) But
0: they're also I mean, that's sales. Booking shows is sales.
1: Yeah. And I just made that. I was finally able to make that connection and I wish it didn't take me that long. Basically my my career and education is like, wow, I wish it didn't take me that long. But you know, but, same here. Yeah. Cause like I was I went to school late like you do. I think, you know, I did a couple of semesters in between tours or whatever, but I didn't really get serious until I was twenty-three, twenty-four around then, which in Utah, at least our culture, that's like (laughs) super citizen. Yeah. I'm a senior citizen. I don't have three kids yet. So, um, no, I think that's really interesting to think about, you know, like what, what are the, what are the lies you're telling yourself about? Like other, a like other people in other cultures really like for, for life, but like in business as well, growing up in DIY culture in believing certain things, it's like, you know what, maybe later on in life, those are the same people you're going to be working with and, and your success depends on them or or even vice right. versa, you know? So I think that's interesting.
0: I, it, to me, what's aggravating about it, it's, it's not to say that, you know, even though uh, I butt heads with creative types, like I said, I completely respect and value what they do. Um, the part that is a bummer to me is anytime there's a lack of respect for other people, you know, you don't have to, want to do sales yourself. You don't have to like that part of the process or whatever, but if, but you should at least respect, I mean, it's, this is a team sport. Anything in life is a team sport and you should always respect what other people do, um, as just a matter of first principles.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's the sooner someone recognizes that I think the better, <laughs> obviously. Um, so from, from there, you went to Abercrombie and in, in, in Fitch. Like, was that just kind of like the continuation of learning and, and meeting new people? Or, or, or what was that Well, I wanted a like big
0: name on my mind? resume because even though I did a lot of work for Procter and Gamble, on my resume, it says the name of the agency. Um, and one of the things I realized is that uh, for better or worse, you know, getting back to the accepted consumer belief thing. The accepted consumer belief among, you know, hiring managers basically is that uh, having big names on your resume matters. It's just a fact like they're not going to read your resume. They're never going to get to know you. I mean, if you don't make it through that initial screen and for better or for worse, I think probably worse, uh, having a big name on your resume is going to tr- make people take you seriously. So I said, well, I, I would like to get a big name on my resume. And I knew some people, you know, through Hardcore, actually who worked at Abercrombie, they got me the job there. And uh, that's why I wanted to work there.
1: And so so, was it more of like the same idea as far as just like design? Like, of course, there's no uh, engineers or uh, as far as like the goop, if you will, you know, like as far as your relationships within that, um, that company, What were the, the better relationships that you made as far as like job title or even like, yeah, well,
0: I mostly hated working with the design people (laughs) for all the same reasons that I always have. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of them were like cool people, but my brain just doesn't work that way. So that was a challenge. Um, the people who I got along with the best are actually were the procurement people. Uh, and the thing that I ended up, one of the biggest lessons from my career that I have found is that for me at least, and I think other people should probably ask themselves if this is true, uh, as well is that when I was younger, I thought that the thing I was working on mattered a lot. In other words, I thought, oh, if I wasn't working on, you know, some cool skate video or something that I'm not going to be happy. Well, I did a bunch of skate videos and it turned out that sometimes they're cool, but lots of times they sucked because the people I was working with were fucking assholes, uh, or incompetent and didn't pay me and shit like that. Um, and then I worked on some stuff, like I did not want to work on any of the PNG stuff at first. Cause like, I was like, I've never bought a fucking fabric softener in my life. How could I possibly be excited to work on bounce? Um, and it turns out that it was fascinating because the, the problem itself was interesting and the people I worked with were really smart and cool. And the, the widget itself was not important. And that was the same thing that I, Realized at Abercrombie as well, I ended up working on the shopping bags there, which I would have never thought that shopping bags would be interesting, but they actually were. If you remember the heyday of Abercrombie, the bag was a big deal for that brand. Um, And so I worked very closely. I I had a marketing role there. Um, Basically, anything with a photo on it, I worked on, and photography was a huge part of the brand at that time. And, uh, because I knew a lot about printing when I was, I I did printing from the time I was like 15 to like 22 or so, that was the job that I hated and I wanted to get out of. Um, but I knew a lot about printing probably more than anybody else at that company at that time. And uh, so I walked in the door with 10 years of experience almost in printing. So I easily was able to kind of slot myself into a role there. I ended up working with those, uh, the global procurement people, GP, and spent a lot of time in, uh, China, Hong Kong and uh indonesia and korea printing shopping bags which was cool because they spent you know i think 20 they did like 25 million bags a year or something like that at the time some huge number of them i was over there you know in asia by myself setting quality standards at these factories uh and uh that ended up actually being a really cool experience and um you know i don't know that i learned a ton uh, because i kind of already kind of already knew came into the job with a lot of the knowledge. but it was at least, you know, it was a cool experience to be able to spend time like that at those
1: factories. And so it's funny, like you talking about like working with creative people, because at some point you started working with a data remember in periphery freelance. And I remember yeah. I actually at one point on your personal YouTube, I went all the way back to when mm-hmm. you're doing videos about how you did certain things for for these bands. So yeah. what was the impetus of, of working with those bands, even though you kind of like understood that you had a harder time working with creative people? And, and in I I don't know, I think of of all people, people in bands <laughs> might be the mm-hmm. most dysfunctional. So what was yeah, what was that? <laughs> uh well,
0: there's I mean, they're everybody's different. And like the guys in periphery, uh, they're certainly musicians, but as far as musicians go, they're among the most organized, like professional bands you're gonna find. And there's a, that so it's, it's not a surprise that they're as successful as they are because I remember the first time I emailed their drummer about something, uh, he replied to me in like two minutes and I was like, okay, I yeah. see why this band is successful.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there, there's a the commonality of, of, of that drive and yeah, yeah. And whatnot.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, with those guys, we just, you know, we, we, uh, they, they operate as professionally as I think any kind of independent band you're going to find, um, so I, I always enjoyed working with them a data to remember I worked with through their management company, uh, and, um, you know, basically just doing like kind of digital marketing stuff. So not a lot of real, like, you know, I, I was running ads for their merch and stuff like that. So it's not like I'm really part of the creative process, uh, which is, you know, fine with me. Right.
1: And was that more just like you wanted, was it. Did you do that? Cause you wanted like more experience under your belt or life circumstances? Like what, what? I just
0: wanted, they paid me. So I did it. You know, I, I, I did that for periphery and got a lot of results from it and they had the same manager. So he was like, Hey, could you do this for some of the other bands? And I said, sure, pay me this much.
1: And he was like, all right. And what was that connection to the manager? Like how were you able to even know about this sort of opportunity?
0: Uh, well I just did it for periphery. Um, because I knew the guys in periphery and That I guess they asked me. I mean, I don't remember if I said you should run ads for this, or if they asked. I don't remember how it happened, but I did it for them, and it like was super successful. And I guess they told their manager, like, "Holy shit, this is doing really well." And so he was like, "Hey, can you pour some of that money juice on my other bands too?" And I said, "Sure,
1: (laughs) why not?" It's it's funny, like how just like a small suggestion or comment can get the ball rolling Mm -hmm. on an opportunity.
0: And all you need to hear is one yes. You know, you can you can ask a question a hundred times, and ninety nine people say no. If one person says yes, it could change your
1: life. At the same time, you were doing uh, the, the freelance work for Data Remember and to you doing the director of operations, like for uh, Creative Live. So going from the Abercrombie and Fitch to that was that more of a thing? Like you know, I want to work in this world, I understand, or did you know people that needed you and you were there to help? What was the the nature of that jump? So for anybody
0: who's not familiar, creative live uh, was and is, they got acquired, but uh, they are slash were a platform, an educational platform for creative professionals. The biggest segment of their business uh, was photography. And uh, also did stuff with like business and crafting and stuff like that. Uh, I did some music stuff for them to kind of start out with. But um, they uh, were venture funded, you know, Silicon Valley tech company. We raised like 65 million, I think, from some top tier investors like Social Capital and Greylock and, you know, people like that, like legit stuff. Um, And the way I came in there is I have known the founder for about 20 years, a guy named Chase Jarvis. I knew him when he was a photographer. Uh, And then him and Craig Swanson started uh, Creative Live right around the time that I moved back to Seattle from uh, Ohio, basically because my life was falling apart in Ohio. And I said, I need to get the fuck out of here. So I moved back to Seattle with like nothing. Everything I owned fit in like five boxes. Like I had nothing. Um, and, uh, I just hit up chase and uh, I wasn't even intending to end up working for him. Uh, I was just like, Hey, you know, he knows everybody. So I said, Hey, do you know anybody, you know, in town that might be hiring? And he's, well, actually, you know, creative lives doing really well. We raised our series a, um, and we're working on raising our series B you should come work for us. So I joined, I was maybe employee number 15 or 20, something like that. Um, and. Uh, Kind of didn't really have a defined job there, um, but I, I'm i fine in that because I think that is one thing, you know, you, if you come from, you know, the hardcore world and stuff, you do sort of thrive in that sort of like ambiguous space of like, you know, I'm just going to find some shit to do. <laughs> um, and for an early stage startup, that's a very good skill. Not so good for a late stage startup. It's kind of, it's very different, but an early stage startup, uh, that's a very good skill to have. So I joined just as, uh, I think I was like just a producer or something was my title. Um, And uh, first thing I did was help Chase put together the presentation to raise our Series B. And to be clear, you know, that's 99% Chase, 1% me. Um, But to even be part of the fundraiser, even just to be a fly on the wall of like the fundraising, I think we raised 20 million or something like that um, to be part of the process of raising that much money from those kind of investors was super valuable. You know, I also helped him a lot with a lot of board meetings and stuff like that. And again, you know, 99% him, 1% me, but just to even be part of the conversation about like, Hey, here's, here's where we're at with the board. Here's what we need from them. Uh, how can, like, how can we create this presentation? That's going to get us from point A to point B, and just to even understand what kind of conversations are happening, you know, with a board like that was again transformational. It's that kind of thing. Same with P and G. You can read about this shit all you want, um, and that's helpful by all means. But uh, you know, for example, like the lead investor in the Series B was Chamath Palihapitiya, who was not well known at the time, but he is now he's one of the guys from the all in podcast. And, you know, he basically, not basically, he did create like the growth function in Silicon Valley um, and made Facebook grow from whatever it was, a hundred million users to a billion users. He was our lead investor. And so just to even be, you know, part of the conversation when you're interfacing with people like that, there's no other way. There's, there's no, there's no substitute for that kind of experience. And, That was really transformational for me. And to be able to work with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, just work with a lot of people that I did there, um, that exposed me to the Silicon Valley way of thinking was incredible.
1: It's, it's amazing what that kind of exposure can do. Like the last full-time job I had before going my own, I was working at this business incubator here in Utah called the space station, which is led by, uh, Sean McBride, who is the YouTuber I'm not sure if you're familiar, familiar no, with him, no. and so he's got. I actually never watched of-
0: YouTube really before I started doing it.
1: That's amazing! <laughs> That's amazing to hear. <laughs> and, but just like kind of seeing, because he's like, he's invested a lot in companies. He has his own investing arm. Works with Steve Aoki out of all people, which has some, you know, DIY. He's a smart guy, very smart guy, and just being that close to him. Because I've like worked with like bigger brands before, like the far, like Wrangler or whatever. But being close to a person yeah like that just to be in the same like room sometimes and and getting that you know the way they think and the way they talk like, that was a a cool lesson you know to to be able to to do that and you know going back to what you're talking about like being you know in the hard in the hardcore scene or punk scene or DIY or whatever being able to deal with ambiguity <laughs> yeah you know, and yeah. being a, a part like i think that's also a, a great thing i feel like you know the best Uh, at least like the hardcore kids that grew up to be entrepreneurs or, you know, business owners, you know, they're the ones that are actually like in bands, you know, in doing the functional aspect of like running shows and and stuff like that. I think that's the, an awesome transferable. Yeah. It's like
0: running a lemonade stand. You know, you learn, it's like uh, entrepreneurship with, you know, low stakes and training wheels.
1: Yep. And then you and then you graduate and, and off you go. <laughs> Hopefully you don't, you know, fall off the bike at any point. But you know, the as the analogy goes, you fall off, you you get back on, right? Yep. so at this point, you know, you're at URM you are, URM you, you are an Academy and you have your YouTube channels and whatnot. Um, do you feel like you've arrived?
0: Uh sort of, in the sense that I paid off all my debts and if things keep going okay, that I'm not going to have to worry about money when I retire, which is really, I mean, my goal, I mean, I joked about this when I graduated from college. My goal was to have a net worth of zero when I was 40, because I graduated with like $90,000 in debt. Um, And uh, so I I successfully accomplished that. and, And then some, I mean, I'm not rich or anything like that, but enough that I haven't had to worry about money for a while, which is really kind of, that was a concept I mean, growing up on welfare and stuff, I never thought that there would be a world where I didn't have to worry about money. Uh, So there is that. Um, But, you know, uh, especially in the past few years, I have, um, you know, when I was there's there's a concept, there's a very good book, which I recommend everybody read called uh, My Life as a Quant, which is by this guy named Emmanuel Derman who invented quantitative finance as we know it. Uh, He's like a physicist. And he talks about this concept there called the time decay of ambition, where he said when he was like eight, he wanted to be Albert Einstein. And when he was, uh, you know, 15, he realized, you know, maybe that wasn't going to happen. He just wanted to be the next so-and-so, some like famous physicist that I've never heard of. And then by the time he was in college, he wanted to be the head of the physics department, and then by the time he graduated from college, he just wanted an office mate who didn't smoke. <laughs> um, and when I was younger, uh, I sort of felt like I needed to be special in some way in order to feel valuable, and I don't feel that way anymore. You know the only thing that really matters to me is if i 'm healthy and uh, you know my basic needs are provided for and I get to spend time with my family. That's really what matters to me. Um, so have I arrived? I mean, I suppose, but in another way, you could look at it as, you know, maybe uh, maybe we have all
1: arrived. Yeah, in one, in one way or another. And last question before I, I let you go. So there might be some folks, you know, who grew up in this scene, you know, uh, who either, you know, Want to turn the corner and you know start their professional life, or or maybe they they watch your videos and you know they laugh at what what you say and do, which you know especially the the Finn McKenty account, you know Mm -hmm. that's where it's at. I would I would say better one. That's I I would agree. Uh, Although the Spotify episode I thought was really good too. Thank you. Um, and the punk rock MBA plug for you. Um, so what's like the one bit of piece of advice you would you would give? um, to folks who grew up in the scene and want to move toward, you know, the next part of their life. Uh,
0: well, I'm going to be honest here, which is maybe a bad idea. Um, one of, one of my faults is that, um, is that sometimes I am maybe too blunt about things. Um, even though I try to soften the blow, even when I do that, sometimes I think it comes across as more harsh than I intend. Um, But I'm just going to keep it real because if you made it this far, I'm going to guess that you don't hate me. Um, Or maybe they're just big, big fans of yours that stuck around because they like hearing you. I don't know. But if you made it this far uh, into this uh, podcast, I'm going to keep it real with you. Um, I think if you want to turn the corner, you need to um, basically deprioritize music and hobbies in your life in a significant way. Uh, I basically stopped paying attention to music and stopped. I don't want to say stopped caring, but I kind of did. Just uh, starting in 2002 or so, 2001, when I started really getting passionate about design um, and realized that sort of that's where I wanted to focus my life was like on my career. um, I mostly stopped going to shows. Like, I mean, I would watch MTV or whatever. Um, but I was not because the, the opportunity cost is real. If you're putting all your attention into being a fan of music and collecting records and going to shows and shit like that, um, and playing in a band, there's only so many hours in the day. There's only, only so much brain Ram, you know, and music, people let music control their whole life. And if, you know, if that's what you want to do, then do what you want. It's not my job to, to say what your priorities should be. But if you're telling me that you want to achieve something in your professional life, something's got to give, you can't like, you can't have music be a fucking part-time or full-time job and expect, you know, you can't ha- you can't expect extraordinary results from a less than extraordinary commitment of time and energy. So if you're spending all your time on your band and going to shows and hanging out and shit like that, you're never going to get anywhere. So I think you got to just you got to deprioritize music. That's my number one piece of advice. People aren't going to want to hear that. There's going to be some people that think, Oh, that's not true. Blah, blah, blah. You're going to, you're going to be into, there's a lot of people right now that their blood pressure is rising because they're operating in denial because they don't, they know that what I just said is true and they don't want to hear it, but it is.
1: Yeah. I, I go to far less shows than, I ever have. My record collection is slim to none. Now my CD collection is slim to none. Now I haven't bought a CD since
0: 2004.
1: Yeah. And that was the first one I bought in like five years. Yeah. But look, but look at you now, Finn. Look, look at you now. Look, look how far you've come. (laughs)
0: Yeah. But, but, um, there's a, a large part of me. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with what I do and I'm grateful. Like it's, it's awesome. But, uh, I wouldn't have chosen this path. Like nobody should do things the way, I, the way that I did because it's incredibly difficult and if I had put the same if if I had ma- put the same amount of effort into making um choices on a better, straighter path, I would be way 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 ahead of where I am now. Like I mean, I could have started several fucking companies. You know, I mean, I'm 44 years old. I've been doing this shit for so long. And I've only just in the past five years or so really kind of hit a place where I feel like I've achieved something professionally that's like, that I'm kind of proud of that like might actually be impressive to somebody. Not that I care about impressing people because I don't necessarily. But my point is like, compare that to people who uh, actually went to college right out of high school with a good major, worked hard, uh, and then got a job at Amazon or something like that. I mean, like my wife. You know, um, she's 29. She, uh, worked at Amazon for six years and she made more when she was 27 than I did until I was like 36, you know, at Amazon, uh, working with some of the highest level people on the fucking planet. Like she sat across from the guy who invented Java. You know, and one of the other guys on her team invented this thing called FreeRTOS, which is the operating system that runs most of the connected devices in your house, like your refrigerator and your, you know, TV and shit like that. Um, because she made much smarter choices than I did. So, I'm not here to tell everyone what their priorities should or shouldn't be, but I think a lot of people are burning a tremendous amount of their life um, invest, they're investing too many of their points in their hobbies, specifically music. And I don't think it's healthy, which I know a lot of people aren't going to want to hear that, but that's my honest opinion as somebody who I'm not putting it down. I'm not judging. Um, just it's something that I think a lot of people need to hear because I needed to hear it.
1: Yeah. And it's, I can, I can attest to that. You know, I got in the van at 18. I didn't do the college thing and I'm insanely grateful for my experiences being on the road and meeting the people i I had but there was a moment when I was 22 23 years old looking out the window in BFE North Dakota out the window of the van and well it's not so much comparing myself to anybody else but it's just like what the hell am I yeah
0: doing? meanwhile someone else is uh into year two of their master's in electrical engineering program at MIT yeah
1: at yeah. the same age and, you know, as far as like, you know, my local culture of, you know, Utah, you know, the people go to BYU business school right after they come back from their, their mission, their Mormon mission. And they're, it's a good school from what I understand. Yeah. Like, as far as like the business aspect is is concerned, like people, they're, they're pumping out great people, even like creative people, like advertising and stuff. It's, it's insane. And, and I know comparisons of the devil and all you know what they say but i think there's value to be able to compare all that that stuff like if you're looking at it from a sober and i think it's
0: also bullshit to say don't compare yourself to other people guess what yeah there's seven other billion people on the planet whether you like it or not like you are being compared to them Mm -hmm. you know you are in competition with the rest of the people on this planet for certain things yep and if you want to bury your head in the sand and pretend that's not the case go for it But that competition is real, whether you want to admit it or not. And there's a lot to
1: learn from it, too.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Because I don't fucking know everything. I compare myself to other people all the time and there's a healthy and unhealthy way to do it. But um, I think comparing yourself to other people is one of the most valuable things you can do. You just need to do it in a constructive way. But Mm -hmm. just uh, the the. Uh, unhealthy way to do it is like, how can I make myself feel like shit by comparing myself to somebody else who has achieved something that I haven't, or who's better looking than me or whatever, like, that's a fast way to make yourself just feel like shit. Um, But if you do what you said, and you say, Hmm, uh, this person has done something that I would like to do, or uh, uh, what can I learn from them? If the question is, what are the differences between me and this person? And how can I improve by observing those differences, I think that's a very healthy conversation to have with yourself.
1: Yeah. And it took me a long time to get there. So the sooner the people get there, you know, with, by learning to folks like you or myself, you know, the, the better their life is going to be, you know,
0: man, that don't, I, don't do anything the way that I did it.
1: Yeah. But as far as like having the, the experience of like understanding, like that's like, cause I, I did a lot of things too. Like don't, don't do what I did in the certain aspects, but as far the as the only thing anyone should learn
0: from me is
1: uh
0: how how to admit that you're uh a fucking idiot
1: <laughs> everyone is in in this, in this, in a way you know? absolutely yeah <laughs> I'm laughing because it's true because i am i am myself, you know if there's just ask me how and then. <laughs> the list is long i could go all day Uh, you know and that's not me being
0: negative and beating myself up i'm saying that because i think it's very like ego is your biggest fucking enemy you know people we hold ourselves back so much because you just don't want to admit the truth which is hey you fucked up and you know what that's fine we all fuck up just admit that you fucked up where do we go from here? Don't dwell on the past. Don't beat yourself up about those fuck-ups. That's useless. But you got to like admit the truth, operate from reality,
1: and where do we go from here? One of the greatest things I, I learned a few years ago that's kind of helped me out a lot is I was listening to this, you know, or a, a sermon or whatever, and, and the guy was saying one of the biggest thing, one of the bi- biggest, ex, not excuses, one of the biggest reasons that the mistakes in your life is you. Yes. Like, no, don't blame anyone else. Like the vast majority, it's you. So what are you going to do? The so. vast majority, not hundred percent. I understand, yeah. you know, I
0: mean, for example, my mom's parents both died when she was really young and that fucked her up. Uh, not her fault, you know, and there's no reason she, you know, like that did fuck her up. That's something that is not, uh, not her fault, but how she dealt with that is unfortunately her responsibility, even though it's not her fault. Yeah.
1: Amen, amen to that. So on that note, let's wrap this up, Finn. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And if, for, for folks who are uninitiated and they're just finding you for the first time, how th- how can they find you and what you do? Uh,
0: if you just look up my name, Finn McKenty, F-I-N-N-M-C-K-E-N-T-Y on YouTube or LinkedIn or, you know, wherever else you'll find me.
1: Easy enough. Well, thank you so much for, for spending your morning with me. And, and I'm it was, it's, uh, it was great chatting with you and learning more about you, and, uh, and hopefully folks can learn from this converse- conversation, too. I appreciate it. Thank you. No problem.
0: All right, my friends. That does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us. Tag Finn McKenty, that's me. And tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer.